All right, go ahead and open your Bibles to the book of James. We're going to be in chapter 1, verses 22 through 25. That is James chapter 1, verses 22 through 25. And this morning we come to a text that teaches us that our faith consists in much more than mere hearing. Uh, James 1.22 is probably the most famous verse in this short letter. It says, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Brothers and sisters, the Bible is different from other books. It's different in that it is the word of God, inspired by him, without error, impossible to err. It is heavenly wisdom and good news for sinners. It proceeds from the mouth of God Almighty. Christ is found in its pages, and so it gives life to those who receive by faith what is revealed. But the Bible is different in another regard, too. Most books teach you things, but they don't demand anything of you. A fiction book demands literally nothing from you. A history book teaches you about the past, but demands nothing. A cookbook tells you how to cook, but does not command you to cook. Science books teach you about the natural world, but they don't demand anything. But the Bible is the law of the Lord. The Bible is the word of God, and it demands things of you. It demands faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Faith in the good news, the gospel, that he saves sinners. It demands faith in God's own self-revelation. It demands agreement with what God has said about all things. And it demands action as well. It demands life change. It demands obedience. And why does the Bible make demands of us? Well, simply put, because it's the word of God. And God Almighty makes demands of his creatures. And because he is God, these demands cannot be put aside without terrible results for those who ignore him. The Bible legitimately demands things of us because God legitimately demands things of his creatures. But brothers and sisters, how often, how often when we hear the word, do we say either aloud or in our hearts, I know. And, and listen, maybe that's a defeated, I know, I know what I ought to do, I know, and I haven't been. Or maybe it's an arrogant, right, kind of like a teenager, I know, right, like I know, I've already heard it, I know. And sometimes we, we, we literally may say it out loud, or maybe it's just in our heart, but either way, it's there. We know what God commands us to believe or do, and then we say, I know. We often know what the word says about how we're to live, what we're to be busy doing, how we are to think, how we're to behave in a situation we find ourselves in, or how we're to navigate just the daily difficulties of life. We often know because we've heard the word, especially if you've been a believer for any uh, length of time. We've heard, we've read, we've heard the word preached. We know. So the question for every single one of us is this. If you know, then why don't you do it? If you know, then why don't you do it? You know, there, there is so much that we know and understand, but we simply don't do. To use James' language, we hear the word, but we do not do the word. Here's a reality check for you real quick. Please tune in here. Have you committed yourself more to prayer since last week's sermon? 
That is, if you hadn't formerly, I don't want to assume bad things of you. But have you committed yourself more to prayer or are you still carrying around your worries and not casting them upon the Lord? Did you hear the sermon and walk away merely a hearer or are you doing the word? As one one man said quite well, and it always makes me laugh, it's not the parts of scripture that I can't understand that bother me. It's the parts I do understand. That's really what gets me. Brothers and sisters, we must do what we know. That's the point of our text this morning, and I'm going to beat that drum for a while today. We must hear the word, and then we must do it. And I submit to you that it's better to know less, but believe and obey what you know, than it is to heap up knowledge that goes unpracticed and unapplied and is essentially useless. I'll use Pastor Steve as an example. Years ago, whenever we were in a band together, Um, I've always been a big theology nerd. Stephen was a bit slower on the uptake with that, and that's not a disrespectful thing. That's just how it was back then. But I'll say this, for all the things that I learned, oh, I could talk. And Stephen at the time knew less than I did, but he did what he knew and shamed me on a daily basis when I spent time with him. It is better to know less but do what you know than to fill your head and make it useless by not practicing it. So hear me, all that we learn and understand from the study of Scripture is meant to bring about change. Don't ever forget that. Our religion is intellectual, yes. It's a thinking person's religion. Don't let anyone ever tell you that it's only for rubes and idiots. That's not our religion. It is intellectual, but it is never merely intellectual. That is a worldly thought. God did not give us his word for mere mental stimulation. This text in James reminds us that our faith always must lead to action. Hearing must always lead to obedience. But before we go any further, let me be clear about something. Um, I've not walked into the pulpit with a stick to beat you with this morning. Um, I have a reputation for that in the past, and I'm, I'm, I'm trying to grow up a bit. That's not my intention today. I don't believe that this is a huge problem in our church right now. I don't. Uh, I, I don't believe that I'm pastoring a group of people who don't care about the word and obeying it. I can see continual growth in you. I see a desire to obey and honor the Lord in you. But I do know human nature well enough, and I know myself well enough, to know that this is a general problem for Christians at different times in our lives. I know that. And I know also that this has been a problem in our church in years past, and I don't ever want us to go back to it. So as Peter says in 2 Peter 1.13, I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder. That's what this sermon is meant to be. It's not, mean, it's not meant necessarily to be a rebuke to this entire congregation. Maybe it will be for some of you. That's the Lord's business between you and him. But my intention is for this sermon to be a reminder for us to have a continual aim at hearing the word and then doing what God has said. And may the Lord bless us this morning as we, uh, and, and encourage us to continue in the way that we've been going, but with more zeal and more focus on glorifying the God of the Word. Now, with that said, if you would and are able, please stand with me now for the reading of the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. James chapter 1, verses 22 through 25. But be doers of the Word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. 
For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. As our Lord Jesus said, your word is truth. We humbly sit before your book and await your instruction this morning. We ask that you would make us teachable today. By your Holy Spirit, soften our hearts and grant us faith to receive the word. Speak to us and grant that we would take in what you've said, digest it, meditate upon it, love it, glory in the truth, and then walk according to the light that you've given. We want to glorify you as we obey you through faith in Christ. So please work that in us today. As always, glorify yourself in us. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. Now, before we begin our study of these verses, I'd like to make a brief clarification about something of central importance to our faith. This morning, I will be talking an awful lot about doing. An awful lot about obedience to God. In other words, I'll be talking about our works and the necessity of Christians doing good works and obeying God. That's the thrust of this sermon in many regards. But let me be clear right out of the gate. None of that means that you are saved by your works. None of that. The word of God asserts over and over again that we are justified by faith apart from any works of the law. That is, we are declared legally righteous through faith in Jesus Christ apart from any obedience to any of God's commandments. The constant teaching of Scripture, let me say it again, is that we are declared righteous in God's sight by faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from any works rendered by us. This is the great theme of the Scriptures. This is the note that I love to sing. Faith alone in Christ alone. But why? Only Christ has rendered perfect obedience to God on your behalf. You can't. You can't. God demands perfection, but you're a sinner. And even your best works are stained with sin and have no merit before God. But before they can even be given to God as a form of gratitude, must be mediated through Christ and cleansed by His blood. Your best works are not meritorious. Only Christ, another thing, only Christ has offered himself as the atoning sacrifice that takes away the wrath of God for those who believe, not your obedience. Your obedience is simply what you should have done anyway. It cannot take away, your obedience cannot take away God's wrath, only Christ. Your obedience likewise cannot make you clean. Again, it's just what you were supposed to do in the first place. Only Christ can wash you clean by His blood and make you fit to approach God in His glory. And Christ, the Savior, is received only by faith. Why faith alone? Well, Because He won't allow you to receive Him on any other terms. The glory is His. Salvation, as Jonah said, salvation belongs to the Lord. 
he will not share glory with you. And what glorifies God more than the salvation of sinners? And so your works do not matter with regard to your right standing with God. He will not have you brag on yourself ever. Christ has accomplished salvation all by himself for all who come to him. Come to him today if you have not. Trust him. You will not work yourself to heaven. Only Christ can save you. And for those of you who have come to Christ, having come to faith in him, there is nothing for you to add to his work on your behalf. What did he say at the cross? It is finished. There's nothing for you to add. There is no merit for you to add to his perfect work. It's perfect. If you add your sinful works, and again, your good works still tainted with sin, to his perfect work, you've just tainted it. There's nothing for you to add to it. Furthermore, you can't get more justified than you already are. You can't be more saved than you already are. So your obedience cannot factor into this. You are saved solely by the merits of Christ. From beginning to end, you are justified by faith. Please hear me. Christ is sufficient, and he is received by faith apart from works. Again, I'm going to beat this drum a little more. The gospel is not about you doing anything. All people talk about doing the gospel. You don't do the gospel. Christ did the gospel. The gospel is about what God has done in Christ to save sinners. It's about believing the promise of God concerning Christ. Namely, that he has saved sinners through the works of Christ. The gospel is not something you do, but the gospel is a message from God about what he has done on behalf of sinners to save them through his only begotten son. The gospel is a message to be received by faith, and the message is that God freely justifies all who believe apart from any good works performed by them, but because of the work of Christ done on their behalf. Again, Christ is sufficient. Therefore, Receiving Christ by faith alone saves a sinner. Oh, we have to know that in our hearts or we cannot proceed. It's Christ. It is Christ. And what a, what a breath of fresh air it is to know. My salvation is not even really about me. It's about what Christ has done for me. But know this, more to the point of our text, works always proceed from faith. True faith is a living faith and is ever accompanied by good works. I'll put it to you this way. You should outdo any Roman Catholic you ever meet. They believe you're justified by a combination of faith and works. We reject that outright. But since good works come alongside with faith, everyone who's been born again ought to outdo every heretic. As Martin Luther famously said, we are saved by faith alone. But the faith that saves is never alone. When someone has been born again and granted faith in Christ, they are now alive in Christ. And good works of necessity begin to pour from the one who is now alive. True faith always results in a change of thinking and adoption of new ways of living. Let me illustrate this. Just as a living man is radically different from a dead man, in that the living man does things while a dead man does not, so also a living faith does. And a dead faith, which cannot save, lies dead in the dirt. Living faith does things. 
So hear me. Common expression here. Faith in Christ is the root of salvation. And that's just another way of saying that Christ is the root of salvation, for we receive him by faith. But our works of obedience, doing the word, good works, are the fruit that springs forth from the root. Let me put it to you this way. I found this enlightening this past week. Wherever Christ is, there is godliness and goodness. And those who trust in Christ are united to him. Wherever he is, there is godliness. And those who have faith are united to him. Again, Christ is the root. And those who receive him will always and inevitably bear fruit. Or to use Christ's own words, he is the vine. We are the branches. What does that mean? We are connected to him. And where he is, there is fruit. Don't you dare call the Savior someone who doesn't give life to the branches. Wherever he is, there is fruit. And with that said, let's now consider the words of James here, beginning with verse 22. But be doers of the word and not hearers only. Before we get into the doing... Let's pause and notice something that often goes overlooked in this verse. I think, again, American evangelicals probably overlook this more often than anything. We must first hear the word before we can do it. He says, not hearers only. What does he mean? You have to hear. If we are to live according to God's commandments, live a life pleasing to him, if we're to believe what he commands us to believe, think as he wants us to think, and live as he wants us to live, we must first listen to what he has to say. We have to turn first to his word and be hearers. And this is actually the big thrust that James has starting in verse 18 through this passage. If you look up, um, James is simply following his logic through in our text. Verse 18 God has caused us to be born again through the word of truth. So then, verse 19, you must be quick to hear. Hear what? The word. Slow to speak. Slow to speak what? Against the word. Slow to be angry. What? With what? About what you've heard. Why? Verse 20. Because rejecting the word will not produce righteousness in you. Your quarreling with the word of God will do no good for you. So what must you do? Verse 21. Receive the implanted word with meekness. This whole section is about rightly receiving and responding to the word of God. Brothers and sisters, we must first hear the word. That's what James is getting at. We must receive it. We must read it, hear it, hear it preached, study it as God has given you ability. Meditate upon it, think through it, turn to it, and think about how it applies to our lives. We must be hearers before we are doers. Or else, we will be very zealous for the Lord, but absolutely ignorant about what pleases Him. I'm paraphrasing Vody Bauckham here. A lot of American evangelicals love Jesus and they don't know anything about Him. And I think they really love Him. I really do. I think that they they have received Christ by faith. And they're very zealous to do something for the Lord. And they have no idea what to do because they are not hearing the Word as they should. We must hear, and this means, so here's some early application, this means that we cannot let sermons or scripture reading go in one ear and out the other. We are to hear, right? So many times we listen to teaching, even maybe right now for some of you, I don't know, I don't know your hearts, 
Uh, but we listen to teaching, but we aren't really thinking deeply about how it applies to us specifically. Uh, my 15 years in the convenience store world gave me an illustration. We're kind of like a teenage cashier who's putting their time in until the sermon's over. That's how, that's how many people listen to sermons. Or we read our Bible and we shut the book and, and then don't give another thought to what we've read. Right, like n- Not another thought to what it calls us to believe or do or how it encourages us, how it shows us the glory of our Savior, how it challenges us or anything else. But we simply read and then we check it off our list of things to do like a good little Pharisee and then move on with our lives. Brothers and sisters, that is not the way. I'll put this to you. That is actually breaking the third commandment because we're not treating God and his word with the reverence and seriousness that it deserves. Such hearing is not even really hearing. We expect our children to listen to us better than that, don't we? We must take it in thoughtfully and seek application, whether it be in regard to our beliefs, our doctrine, our thinking, or our actions. But again, I say, before any good works or godly reformation of life can take place, we must first hear the word. This is how it worked with our salvation. We must first hear the gospel and believe it. The same is true for our sanctification and growth in Christ. We must first hear the word and believe it. So, brothers and sisters, in the words of our Lord, be careful how you hear. Be careful how you hear. But truly receiving the word means more than merely hearing and believing that it's true. And that brings us to the next phrase for our consideration. But be doers of the word. Listening is good. What James is condemning here is merely listening. Merely hearing the word is unacceptable for a true Christian. We must be doers of the word and not hearers only. And frankly, this is the only appropriate response to really hearing the word. And I say that because those who do the word are those who have heard it with faith. Those who do the word are those who have heard it with faith. They have received the word and they are clinging to it as the very word of God. And as I said earlier, faith always results in action. So hearing with faith results in doing. Anything less is a superficial hearing. Such a hearing is not coupled with faith. Brothers and sisters, striving to obey the word of God is second nature to the person who has been born again. Or more, more theologically, we could say it's new nature for those who have been born again. It's like a baby that cries when it comes out of the womb. It just does it. Nobody teaches a baby to cry. It just cries. In a similar way, those who have been born again immediately want to please the Lord. Now, we don't do it perfectly. And, and we need instruction in what pleases him because we're still sinners. But the desire to please him is immediately present when you're born again. Nobody has to teach you the desire to please God. In fact, it can't be taught. It can't be taught. It just exists in the heart of every Christian. I can't, can, you, can you make someone desire something, like really in their innermost being desire something? It's like John Piper said one time, I can put a painting in front of you and I can say, do you see all of the colors and all of the techniques that the, the painter used? And you can understand a lot about the painting. And then I ask you, is it beautiful? I can't make you think the painting is beautiful. You either think it is or it isn't. 
I can't teach you. No one can teach you to desire to please the Lord. It just exists in the heart that has been born again. God fundamentally changed us radically at our core. He has transformed us, giving us a new nature, a righteous nature, and a a new inner man that desires him and desires to glorify him in all we do. That's what he's done for every Christian. Now, how do I know that that's the case for every Christian? Well, I, I know that because of what the Bible says about the blessings of the new covenant inaugurated in the blood of Christ. Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 33 through 34. I'm going to read this to you now. And I, 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 want, to, I want to hopefully stir up in you. I want, I want to show you what you are. Right? That, that's a super thing. That's the apostles did it all the time. Let me show you what Jesus has objectively done for you. Let me show you what you are. Jeremiah 31, verses 33 through 34 says this. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Jeremiah says that there are three three great blessings that the Lord Jesus has purchased with his blood. There are three blessings mentioned here for all who are in the new covenant. And those who trust in Christ are in the new covenant. So here they are. First, the one we tend to focus on the most, the last one mentioned, God will no longer remember the sins of those who are in the new covenant. Beautiful. Our sins are forgiven in Christ. We all accept that. That's what it is to be a member of the new covenant. Let me, let me tell you the other two. <laughs> let me tell you the other two blessings mentioned here. If your sins have been forgiven, these things are true of you. These other two things. Second, everyone in the new covenant knows the Lord. You are his people and he is your God. You know him. What does that mean? Not just that you have the knowledge of him, but that you know him. Every new covenant member has a personal relationship with God. Please don't shy away from that language just because it's been abused in the past. Every person in the new covenant has an intimate, loving relationship with God. He loves them. He is their God. They are his people. And they love him. He is their God. They are his people. A new heart has been given to them. They now personally know and love the Lord. And with this, obviously comes a desire to please Him. And then third, this third blessing Jeremiah mentions, is that God will write His law on the hearts of every member of the new covenant. That is, He writes His word on our hearts. He writes His commandments on our hearts. His law on our hearts. Now, why? Why does he do this? Well, listen, it's not so that we can simply know what his law is. You you can have that by considering law written on tablets of stone. You You can know what the word of God says by just considering written scripture. That's not the same thing as having it written on your heart. But instead, having it written on our hearts in this context has something to do with making the law part of us. 
Have you ever considered yourself this way, Christian? The law of God is written on your heart, which means in some sense it is now part of you. God has made our hearts beat with his law or beat for his law. He's written his law in our hearts, and in doing so, he gives us the ability and desire to walk in his ways and glorify him in our obedience. This is the reality for every genuine Christian. This is what you are, believer. You are a person with the word of God written on your hearts so you can and will obey him. That's one of the blessings Christ bought for you. You used to not be able to do that. You used to not have that. Now you do. So then, we do not hear the word to merely hear it. We do not come to church to merely have our minds filled with knowledge. We, we come to the word of God to be instructed in what to believe and how to live in order to glorify the God who has forgiven us, loved us, brought us to love him, and enabled us to obey him. Mere intellectual assent to the truth of the word simply isn't enough. God has done more for us than that by bringing us into the new covenant. Our religion is more than that. It's not less than that, mind you, but it's more. Allow me to continue to highlight this. We must do. We are not entirely passive in the Christian life. This is a bit controversial amongst some Reformed people. We can fight in the parking lot if you want. We are not entirely passive in the Christian life. Let go and let God is silly and unbiblical. We are to do. We do not read and pray and, and, and receive the supper and hear preaching and then sit on our couches and wonder why we've not grown and why we are not obeying the word like we had hoped. Brothers and sisters, that is not the way. Rather, we are to use conscious effort and apply what the word says practically. Think about it this way. The means of grace are fuel for you to go do. The means of grace change you and strengthen you and put, by God's uh, making them effectual, puts strength within you that you might go do. We are, we are, I want to be clear, we are absolutely passive in that God is the one who first works in our hearts to give us the desire and ability to obey him. But nevertheless, we are to take an active role and attempt to obey him. Doing the word will not just happen. Oh, if, if I've learned something as a Christian, that's the truth. Doing the word doesn't just happen. It won't fall into your lap. It takes effort. It requires you to be uncomfortable. It requires you to exercise self-control. It at times requires planning. It takes effort. Who among us who's really tried to mortify sin in our lives would say, nope, it just happened? I don't think anyone that has a besetting sin knows better. Killing sin takes effort. Striving to live righteously takes effort. Dealing with your anger biblically takes effort. It is an act of the will in dependence upon the Lord. Brothers and sisters, we still have a sinful nature with which we war daily in prayer, hearing the word, and attempting to do what the word says. 
So I believe I'm paraphrasing Jonathan Edwards here. We are at the same time wholly passive as God works in us and wholly active as we strive to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. We are to do. But you know, it is, it is so easy to become self-satisfied with our knowledge of Scripture and leave it at that. It's really easy. I've done it a lot. We sit under decent expository preaching and I want to highlight decent (laughs) decent expository preaching we have Sunday school classes that are profitable we read pious and and profound commentaries we read the old dead guys and some of the living ones too And, and then we sit on the couch so to speak pleased with ourselves for learning so much and then we do nothing that is a sin as James says in James 4.17, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. You remember Spider-Man, with great power comes great responsibility? The Bible's version of that is with knowledge comes great responsibility. You know, you can audit a college class. You, you, can, you can hear it. I've done it. You can audit a class, uh, but you're not accountable for what you've learned at all. There are no tests. You're not required to study outside of the classroom. You simply hear, but don't have to do anything with what you've heard. Brothers and sisters, Christianity is not an auditing religion. You are accountable to what you hear. You are to obey. The Christian is to be known as a doer. This should be the descriptor of every believer. He is a doer of the word. She is a doer of the word. I want to encourage you. This is what you are in Christ. His law has been written on your heart. This is what you are as a member of the new covenant. So I beg you, in the spirit of the apostle Paul, be what you have been made. Don't live as one who has been unchanged. Don't live like a worldling. That's not who you are anymore. You have the law on your heart. You have a heart of flesh where a heart of stone used to be. You've been brought to know the Lord. You have become his special possession. You are, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. So go and be what He has made you. Do the Word. But for those who will not heed James's Word, He gives a warning at the end of verse 22. He says, But be doers of the Word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. There is a danger in hearing but not doing. Such a person... He says is self-deceived. I think the word here more literally means they have made a horrible miscalculation. Their math is bad. And I think that there's two major uh, kinds of deceptions that professing Christians fall into when they hear but don't do. The first, and I think this is James' primary thought here, because this seems to fit the thrust of his letter. Such a person who hears but does not do may very well be deceiving himself into thinking he's a believer when he is not. Please hear me. I don't question anyone in this room's profession of faith. That is between you and the Lord. I don't see any grievous sin or any impenitence or anything, but nevertheless, this needs to be said. If a person's life is one of habitual and unrepentant inaction and unresponsiveness to the Scriptures, such a person is not converted. Such a person is still dead in their sins and on their way to hell. They may be quite religious and very familiar with the language of the faith and proper doctrine, but they have not yet received Christ. 
they have not been born again. They are still spiritually dead with no faith. They're like the, the character in Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. Spoiler alert for those of you who haven't read it in my small group. Talkative was his name. And this one hurts. He loved to talk about religion. He loved to, to quote scripture. He loved to talk about the exposition of the text. He loved to talk about theology, quote theologians. And then when it came time for Christian to say, yes, but what of your experience of Christ? Talkative didn't want to talk anymore. Or let's go do the hard thing now and talk it of bolts. I don't want to be around someone like you. Such a person is spiritually dead and with no faith. Now, how do we know that? Because they don't have any desire to walk with God. And what does that mean? It means they have not yet received the blessing of a new heart with God's law written on it. They still have a chest full of stone and lawlessness. Please hear me. It doesn't matter what you profess with regard, with, with regard to religion. What matters is what you possess. Professions are worthless. You must possess Christ by faith. And if you have no fruit of obedience or no desire for obedience, sometimes the desire is there, and yet we are so caught in sin. But nevertheless, the desire is there. If you have no desire for obedience but are simply at peace with merely hearing the word, you do not possess true faith in Christ. You possess what the Puritans called a historic faith. You think it's true. If there's not even a desire there, you don't know him. And you must come to faith in him or be lost eternally. But know this. I may be deceived. Men may be deceived. God is not. Christ knows the truth. He knows those who have come to him. And their lives will give evidence of what is in their hearts. Don't deceive yourself. But a second kind of deception may be for someone who is a true believer, but has fallen prey to a lie. Such a person who hears but does not act may have deceived himself into thinking that God is pleased with his hearing when God is not pleased. I think I've fallen into this. God is very happy with me that I'm learning so much. And again, when action follows behind it, I believe the Lord is pleased with your hearing and your learning. But know this, God is absolutely disgusted with the idea of one of us hearing his word but not doing what he says. Does that not anger you? Parents, you know what I'm talking about. When someone knows what you've said, agrees that you're right, knows it's the best thing to do, has nothing to say against it, but then just flatly doesn't do what you've said, it is infuriating. Some of you deal with this with your parents if they're getting on in age. They're just unreasonable sometimes. This makes you angry, does it not? How much more with Almighty God? He is not pleased with such inaction and disobedience. He did not give us his word for us to merely learn it. He didn't waste his breath. He gave it for us to obey. As it is written, the secret things belong, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. What is, what is revelation? The scriptures. What has been revealed is for us that we might do it. Or as Jesus says at Luke eleven twenty eight, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Or again, the very searching question that Christ gives in Luke six forty six: Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? No, our Lord is not pleased with inaction because inaction is disobedience. It is sin. 
And such a person is either unconverted and dead in their sins, or they are a child of God who is in for a rude disciplinary awakening from their father who loves them. For God will not allow them to live foolishly forever. If this applies to you, hear me, I don't know if it does. If this applies to you, receive the rebuke of the word of God and repent. Don't, what does James say earlier? Be slow to speak, right? quick to hear, slow to get angry. Don't get angry with what the scripture is saying here. Receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Repent. If this applies to you, repent. Know this. In Christ, God has more mercy and grace than you will ever have sin. Do not be afraid to come to him acknowledging your sin and asking for forgiveness. He will give forgiveness. And then, in grace upon grace, he will strengthen you for godliness going forward. Just be honest with him. Don't rail against his word. Receive it. Back to our text. In verses 23 and 24, James continues by giving us an illustration of the worthlessness and absurdity of hearing and not doing. And it's actually kind of funny. Let me read them to you again. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. This is, this is funny when you understand it. Hearing and not doing is like looking in a mirror and then forgetting. And you say, what, what, what's a first century mirror? Well, first, it's, it's made of polished bronze or other metals, right? So it wasn't a mirror like we have. Um, but it... Uh, po- polished metal functions as a mirror. And what do they use it for? Same thing we do. Toiletry use. Fixing your hair. People have always cared about what they look like. Right? Fixing their hair. Checking for cleanness of face. Examining your appearance. That's the use of mirrors then as now. You looked intently into a mirror to examine your appearance to see if anything needed to be tended to or changed about yourself. James here compares the word of God to a mirror. Looking into the mirror is to hear the word. Before we go any further, brothers and sisters, the word of God is a mirror. If you've ever heard that illustration, this is where it comes from. The word shows you what you are. It tells us the truth about who we are, both negatively and positively. I'll get to positively later. But the word doesn't lie. It doesn't flatter. It doesn't exaggerate. As Spurgeon said, it's not a trick mirror. It gives us the straight truth about ourselves. It reveals ourselves, or rather reveals us to ourselves. Surely you've experienced this if you've read Scripture much. Doesn't the Scripture, doesn't the Word show you your dirty face? It shows you your sin. It shows you your ugliness in the full light of truth and God's righteous, righteous standard. But praise be to God, it also points us to the fountain of Christ's blood where we can wash and be made clean. Oh, thank God for that. The, the mirror itself can't make you clean. It can just tell you to go somewhere else and get clean. And the Word does that. But then afterwards, what does the Word do yet again? After being cleansed, it shows us how to live. What changes need to be made to our spiritual appearance? It shows us how to keep ourselves, as James says in verse 27, unstained from the world. But to look in the mirror and then forget what you look like, what does that mean? It means you've done nothing with the knowledge of your appearance. It doesn't make any sense. 
To what end? That's the question I, always, I like to ask when I'm frustrated. To what end? Like, why did we do this? To what end? Let me ask you this. To what end did you look into the mirror? What was the point? The mirror did its job. The word will always do its job. The mirror did its job. It showed you the mark on your face that needs washing. It showed you that your hair needed fixing. But because you went away and forgot, which means you did nothing with the knowledge that was revealed to you, the mirror was of no use to you. Brothers and and sisters, to examine yourselves in the scriptures and then do nothing in response is madness. James is using a funny example here because it's crazy. When you see your imperfections, your sins, the ugly marks on your face, you should do something about it. You should run to Christ for washing. And then you should consider how to avoid becoming dirty again. You should consider how to walk cleanly before him. And then you should devote yourself to doing it. No one in their right mind examines their face that closely and then utterly neglects the flaw they discover. How much more ludicrous is it to ignore and neglect what you've seen in the mirror? It makes no sense for one who professes faith in the God of the word. Or to use James's language in verse 18, it makes no sense for someone who professes to have been born again of that same word. But more positively, you can look in the mirror and see your own beauty. I'm not encouraging you to be vain. That's a sin. But hear me. You can look in the mirror of God's word and behold what you are in Christ. Can you not? You you can behold his, really it's his beauty that's been given to you through your union with him by faith. What am I getting at? You can see what he has made you. That he's made you beautiful. Read Song of Solomon if you think that you've not been made beautiful in Christ. What what, what does Solomon say about his bride? Solomon's just a, a type of Christ. Oh, she's gorgeous. I only have one. (laughs) So there's lots of wives and queens and concubines. I have one wife. I love her. She's beautiful. He's made you beautiful. He's made you new. He's made you clean. He's made you without blemish in his sight. So why then would you look into the mirror and see, oh, look what he's made me, and then walk away and live in such an ugly manner? That doesn't make sense. To see in Scripture that Christ has made you beautiful by His blood and has changed your heart and then live without a thought to that is madness. You're living contrary to what He's made you. So to use or really not use the word in this way is to make it worthless to yourself. Now, of course, the word is not worthless. It is the very word of God. But you are making it useless to you by not hearing it properly. And yet this is often what we're tempted to do. This is how a lot of professing Christians treat the word. Some more and some less, but I think we're all guilty of it at times, or James wouldn't have written this, and God wouldn't have preserved it for us today. So brothers and sisters, we must use the word rightly. We must be doers of the word. And now we come to our last verse, and and here James tells us of the blessedness of hearing and doing. Verse 25, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. James is making a contrast between those who hear 
and those who hear and do. And here James calls the word of God the perfect law, the law of liberty. So he's, he's thinking of the scriptures with a view toward the commandments of scripture. And the one who looks into it is one who hears. But again, this person hears and does and is blessed. Now they'll be blessed. How is that? Well, I think, I think it's because the word is the law of liberty is why they are blessed if they obey it. The word of God brings liberty and blessing. But what kind? What are we talking about? Well, I want to be very clear. As I said earlier, obeying the word doesn't give salvation. So obeying God's commandments does not give liberty in that sense. But as John Gill pointed out in his commentary, the word does reveal our sin. And it does reveal the gospel and sends us to Christ for salvation. So in that sense, the law brings liberty to those who receive it. It shows you you're a sinner and tells you to run to Jesus. tells you to believe on Christ. But there's another sense in which the word of God gives liberty to those who obey it. And I don't think we think about this enough. Through faith in Christ, the word of God becomes our rule. It becomes our guide and standard. It can no longer damn us. Christ has dealt with that, praise God, by his dying and, and cleansing, uh, dying for us and cleansing us. But instead, now the law of God is our friend. And it teaches us how to live in freedom. That is how the law gives liberty. Christ has freed us from the penalty for our sin and from the dominion of sin and Satan. What does that mean? Brothers and sisters, Paul says in Galatians, we are free in Christ. We are free. We are free men. And the word of God that once condemned us for our sin now teaches us how to live freely. It, it teaches us how to live. No longer being a slave to sin and our own wicked desires, but teaching us to walk in the light of liberty. People that have been in prison for 30 or 40 years and finally get out, they have to learn how to live again, don't they? Why? Because they're no longer under the dominion of people who are watching over them at all times, telling them what to do in the prison system. They have to learn how to live freely. In the same way, slaves who have been slaves their whole life but granted freedom, what do they have to do? They have to learn how to live freely. Brothers and sisters, the same thing is true for us. Having been set free in Christ, we need someone to teach us how free people live. And know this, true freedom is living in obedience to God. Living according to our sinful desires is pure slavery. But Satan is so deceptive that he will make slavery look like freedom. But let's be honest. Let me ask you this. If you're angry all the time, are you free? Anger is a slave master selfishness is a slave master lust is a cruel slave master worry is a cruel owner laziness is slavery lying is bondage your will is a cruel taskmaster lack of self-control is misery a guilty conscience is a terror you get the point i think sin is slavery but obeying the word of God teaches us how to live in dependence upon God to overcome our sin and live in the freedom that Christ has purchased for us. 
Brothers and sisters, we have been set free so that we might live for God. This is what we were designed for. This is what Adam was in the garden. This is what we were supposed to be before sin came into the world. Once we could not and would not obey God, Romans 8, 7, and 8. But now, since we have been set free in Christ, we can. And the word guides us in freedom. Freedom from all manner of things that enslave and weigh us down. Such a person who obeys this law of liberty is truly blessed then, are they not? They're living as free men. God grants peace to this one. He grants the assurance of salvation to this one. He grants more and more freedom and more and more new desires to this one. You kill one sin, you're free. Granted, you must continue to kill it daily, but you're free. And what's the Lord say? Hey, there's another one. Why? Because I want you to live more freely. You conquer that sin. Hey, there's another one. What's he doing? He's giving you more and more freedom as you obey his word more and more. You already have freedom in principle, but he's giving it to you practically in your obedience to his word. He gives more and more strength and help to overcome sin. He gives a sense of his own fatherly pleasure to the one who obeys. Truly, the one who does the word is blessed. So do you want to be blessed? Do you want to live freely? Then obey the word. He'll bless you in your doing of it. In it. So brothers and sisters, as, as we come near the end, how do you hear the word? Do you hear it only to fill your head? Or do you hear it with an eye to how it might change you? Again, I give James warning. If you don't hear the word with an eye to doing, you are in a dangerous place spiritually. And I beg you, please don't waste the precious word of God. Don't leave here today. Oh, please hear me. Here's your big application. Do not leave here today agreeing with the truth of what you've heard, but not applying it. Please. Don't walk out that door and forget what you've seen in the mirror this morning. I trust that the Spirit of God has been bringing things to your mind as you've heard this. And if He hasn't, I believe He will later. Don't walk out that door and forget what you've learned. Don't leave this place and forget what Christ has done for you and written on your heart. Be a doer of the Word. And cry out to God for enabling grace. And please, don't leave here saying today, I talked to Stephen about this, don't leave here saying, you know, I really wish so-and-so could have heard that sermon. This sermon was for you. Don't be arrogant and assume that this was not for your own benefit. The Lord brought us here this morning. Whether that was to bring you to repentance or encourage you to continue as you've been doing, that's for him and you to know. But either way, this sermon was for you. Do the word, brothers and sisters. But remember, as you must always remember, your doing won't save you. I've been talking this morning about the life of one who has already been saved. Your works will never make you right with God. Only Christ can. So then, my brothers and sisters, live free in him. Glorify the great liberator who has set you free from the tyranny of sin and written his word on your heart. Do the word not for salvation, but because you're new in him. Because this is now your great desire. Because you have tasted the sweetness of the Savior's love and now want to show your gratitude and affection for him. So may God help each one of us to not merely hear, but to do the word of God 
to the praise and glory of the God of our salvation. Amen. Let's pray. Our great God, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would help us to do it. But God, we know that our doing starts with our believing, and so we ask that you would grant us faith in your word. Help us to see its majesty and its beauty and its truthfulness. Help us to see how it applies to us. And then God, having seen, put it in our hearts to do it. Glorify yourself in us. Work greater and greater obedience in our hearts. And help us to live in light of the new covenant blessings that Christ has purchased for us. We pray in his name. Amen.